By way of introduction, I just wanted to quickly state up front that this text in Hebrews 4 was not randomly selected. I began teaching Hebrews in my small group, and we left off in chapter 3. And as an expositor, it made perfect sense to pick right up where I left off. Um, So I, I prepared this for a sermon this morning for you guys. Now, before we get into Hebrews chapter 4, I believe it will be helpful to provide a summary of the events that transpired prior to the Israelites' arrival at Kadesh Barnea. Knowing this history will help us grasp the rich theological truths contained in this chapter. So what we're going to see here quickly is the Exodus generation and the crisis that occurred in the wilderness. The events leading to their arrival at Kadesh Barnea began approximately 635 years earlier when God told Abraham that his offspring would be afflicted for 400 years in a foreign land and that he would deliver those people. This promise became a reality in the year 1446 B.C. when God delivered the Israelites from their bondage in Egypt. And as this went down, the Israelites had front row seats to God's judgment being poured out upon the Egyptians. And the climax of their rescue was the Passover, the death of the firstborn Egyptians, and the exodus from Egypt. Yet even after their departure, God continued to display his awesome power for them as he parted the Red Sea and led them across on dry land, as he defeated Pharaoh's army, as he turned bitter water sweet, as he fed them manna and quail, and he gave them water from a rock. And God displayed his fiery might on Mount Sinai, which struck a deep fear in each of their hearts. Not a single one of the Exodus generation could deny God's awesome power. The fact is, God delivered them from bondage so they could worship him, so they could obey him, so they could bring him glory as he led them into a promised land a land that they did not deserve. This year-long journey from Egypt to Sinai to Kadesh Barnea was no walk in the park. In spite of seeing God's power firsthand, this journey was full of unrest and unbelief. So I'm going to put up here a chart, what I like to call the, the chart of grumbling. So this Exodus generation, they had grumbled when Moses confronted Pharaoh on their behalf. They complained that Moses led them to die at the Red Sea. They moaned about the bitter water. They griped about being hungry. They lamented about being thirsty. They made a golden calf, and they worshipped it after seeing God do all of this for them. They complained about the food again, and then they challenged the leadership of Moses. Yet, in spite of the fact that these people were a royal pain in the butt to Moses, He continually interceded for them, and he pleaded with God for them, and God gave them grace upon grace upon grace. And finally, when they arrived at Kadesh Barnea, and the promised land was within their grasp, the Lord had just one more thing for them to do before they could claim this land. The Lord commanded that representatives from each of the 12 tribes spy out the land of Canaan and see how things really were. When they returned after 40 days, they began with positive reports, telling everybody that the land was incredible. It was just as God promised it would be. They spoke of amazing fruit, confirming the fact that the land flowed with milk and honey. And everything was fine up to this point. But then things quickly went south 
when 10 of the spies spread fear by whimpering about giants who were capable of squashing them like insects. The Israelites had reached a pivotal moment in their history. Would they trust in the Lord who struck down the Egyptians? Would they, struck, would they trust in the Lord who crushed Pharaoh's army? Would they trust in the Lord, the one whose awesome power they saw in Sinai? Or would they shrivel in fear and desire to return to Egypt? Most of you know how this story ends. While seeing that things were spiraling quickly out of control, Caleb and Joshua tried to suppress a rebellion by reporting the fact that, yes, we can take this land, but it was to no avail. Panic swept the masses, and the Israelites accused the Lord of leading them into the desert so that they could die by the sword. Moses and Aaron tried to stop this rebellion and fell on their faces before the people. And knowing that this was going to end badly, Moses pleaded with God for them, yet they were out of luck. This was the final straw for that generation. And the Lord God swore in his wrath that not a single Israelite from the age of 20 and older would step foot in the promised land, except for Caleb and Joshua. Today was finished for them. The Exodus generation would remain in the wilderness for until every single one of them had died. Their unbelief kept them planned. Now, this narrative sets conditions for our text that we're about to read in Hebrews chapter 4. So if you will turn with me in your copy of the Bible to Hebrews 4, I will be reading verses 1 through 10. Hebrews 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today saying through David so long afterward, in the, word, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So what we see unfolding in this text is that the author of Hebrews is addressing a similar crisis to the one that occurred in Kadesh Barnea. The people, the names, the location are all different. The author of Hebrews is writing to second-generation Jewish Christians. Now we can quickly see in Hebrews chapter 4 the common theme of unbelief remains. Some of these Jews were, in fact, saved by faith in Christ, yet they were slow in their discipleship and they needed a little bit of a nudge. Yet there were others who only believed intellectually, and they were not saved. They were considering, 
considering abandoning Christ and returning to the old covenant. And so the author of Hebrews is giving them a warning. Now, it may be helpful to keep these two groups in the back of your mind as we work through this sermon this morning. And I'm going to break down this sermon providing five truths from the text that I'm going to offer some applications at the end. Truth number one that we see in this text is that the promise of God's rest remains while it is still called today. The first thing that we read in verse 1 is the fact that the promise of rest still stands. And he draws a parallel in verse 2 between the Exodus generation and the Jews who were living in the first century who have heard the gospel. He is reminding them that their forefathers failed to enter rest when they had the good news preached to them by Moses. The Exodus generation heard the good news and were in the presence of God who desired to make this promise a reality for them. The promised land was within sight. They could almost grasp it. They could smell the flowers from the fields. They had tasted the fruit and it was sweet. Yet they could not enter because of unbelief. The author of Hebrews is saying, well, guess what, guys? You have also received the promise of rest. You have had better news preached to you. You have received better promises in Christ. The rest that God offers offers is more than you could ever imagine. And this promise of rest remains today for you. Yet unless you grab a hold of this rest by faith, you will end up just like your forefathers who received the promises of good things to come, yet they died in the wilderness out of unbelief. Today was over for that generation, yet today remains for you. The author doesn't want them to delay a second longer because we never know when today is going to end. The author is sounding an alarm for anybody who is on the brink of repeating the same mistake that they made. Now, in order to focus their minds on the promised rest, the author decides to do a little biblical theology with them. He needs to show them that there is a greater rest available to them by connecting the dots between the Exodus generation and Moses to the conquest generation and Joshua to the kingdom with David, and to their present day. So we enter into truth number two, and that is that the Old Testament has always pointed to a future rest. The author argued in great detail about the Exodus generation's failure to make it into the promised land due to unbelief. We see this in verses two, three, and five. Yet the point the readers need to understand is the fact that it wasn't just the Exodus generation who were plagued by unbelief. Even the conquest generation who were led by Joshua only experienced a temporary rest. We see this in verse 8. It did not take long for this conquest generation to lose the rest because they too failed to trust in the promises of God. God called them to eradicate the Canaanites so they wouldn't be enticed by sin. Yet, compromise after compromise, and before you know it, the next generation looked no different than the previous ones. God was offering them rest from their enemies and a good land so they could worship Him in peace. Yet, with the blink of an eye, they were turning their backs on God, seeking after the world, and ended right back in bondage again. However, God was gracious, and He ushered in seasons when they experienced a little tiny taste of this rest. But these times were far from perfect, 
So the author references David in verse 7, pointing to the fact that there is a future rest. Psalm 95 is quoted extensively in chapters 3 and chapters 4, illustrating the fact that David was anticipating a future rest. Now, as we look at the history of Israel, it is crystal clear that they never received the rest that their hearts desired. The author of Hebrews wants his readers to see that there is a a future rest, a foreign rest, a rest that they cannot quite comprehend at the present time, a rest that God has instituted and that he alone can provide. Now, this brings us to truth number three, and that is that God's promised rest began during the creation. In order to frame the reader's minds around the severity of missing out on God's rest, the author has to draw their minds away from the temporary and fix their focus on the eternal. He's telling his readers to stop thinking about a piece of land or a kingdom. These things come and go. You need to start thinking big picture, God-sized rest. The author reminds his readers that God's rest was completed from the foundation of the world in verse 3. And then he cites Genesis 2-2, reminding them how God has rested on the seventh day. Now, Genesis 2-2 is vital to the overall argument. We know that God created everything in six days. And once finished, God observed his creation, and it was very good. Then... God rested from his works. But this begs the question, why would God rest on the seventh day? It isn't like God was tired and needed to rest. The fact is that God did this before the fall to give us an example of rest. He did this to prefigure what rest looks like so that we would aspire to enter into it. God established the foundations of a future rest for his people by resting himself on the seventh day. God gave us the model for rest. The fact is, is that God knew we would sin. God knew that we would tarnish the world that he created for us to enjoy. God knew that we would fall. God knew that there would be toil. God knew that disease and decay would become a reality for us. God knew that death would come. You see, the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the garden brought labor and toil for everyone who has ever lived until we enter the grave. After the fall, the rest that God created us for became a distant reality that our souls desperately craved. God knew the weight of the fallen world would be constantly pressing down on us. So he rested before the fall even occurred, demonstrating a future rest for his people. And then God gave us the Sabbath as a reminder of his promise of rest. By doing so, God has demonstrated on day seven that he is both the beginning and the end, that he is the author and he is the perfecter, that he is the creator of all things and he is the consummator of all things. God's rest reveals the fact that there is a coming day of redemption where the people of God will rest in his presence eternally. Now this brings us to truth number four. Before we enter into his rest, we must first 
face a sword. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So the author of Hebrews reminds his readers in verse 11 to strive, to endeavor, to labor to enter into that rest so they do not fall by the same disobedience that kept their ancestors out of the promised land. And he sets this argument up by detailing the word of God as being living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut us open with precision to divide soul from spirit, joints from marrow, thoughts and intentions of the heart. Ultimately, the word of God is so effective that it leaves us naked and exposed before his eyes. He is the one whom we must give account, and it is his word that splits us in two. Now, the Greek word used here for sword is Machaira. This is a short sword or a dagger used in close hand battle. Admittedly, it's, easily to, it's easy to read Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, and to isolate these verses from everything the author previously stated about rest. However, the author wasn't just dropping random theological truth bombs that lack coherency. There was a reason that this is in here. In order to make sense of God's word as a sword, I would like to draw your attention back to the wilderness generation for a brief moment. When God swore they would not enter his promised land, how did they respond? Numbers chapter 14, verses 39 through 43. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to summarize it real quickly. They responded by mourning over God's judgment upon them. But the fact is, it was too late because today was finished. So they, they, they devised plan B. They tried to make it into the promised land by force, in spite of the fact that Moses warned them that they would fall by the edge of the sword. Nonetheless, this stiff-necked generation decided to go into battle alone. They went into battle without Moses, without the Ark of the Covenant, and more importantly, they went into battle without the Lord leading the way to victory. And the end result was a swift defeat where the Israelites were struck down by the edge of the sword and were chased away by the Canaanites. God used the sword of the Canaanites to strike the Exodus generation down when they tried to muscle their way into his rest. But after 40 years had passed, the second generation were allowed to enter. Yet at the moment that Joshua led them across the Jordan, every single male had to face a different sword. Only this sword cut differently. Each of them had to be circumcised as a picture of their sinful, wicked hearts and as a physical reminder of God's covenant with them. Now, I believe that the author of Hebrews wants his readers to see that in order to pass into the promised land and by implication the promised rest, the people of God would have to face a sword. It's rather ironic that the author of Hebrews states that the word of God is a sharp two-edged sword, Machaira. Machaira is the same exact word used in the Septuagint in Numbers chapter 14, verse 43, detailing the Canaanite sword, as well as Joshua 5.2, detailing the circumcision knives. 
The Septuagint is the Greek Old Testament that the recipients of Hebrews would have been reading. So the author wants his readers to know that that must come sword of God's word. In order to enter God's rest, we must face the mightiest sword of all, the living and active word of God. The word of God strips away any pride that's within us, any sense of accomplishment, any sense of self-sufficiency. The word of God renders us undone before the Lord. The only words that we are able to utter in response to God's living and active word is, woe is me. All of my sins, all of my wicked thoughts, all of my unbelief are laid bare and naked before him. And I realize that I am not worthy to enter into his presence. Yet there is one who is worthy, the better Joshua. There is one who has seen the eternal rest and brought back a great report. There is one who has passed by the sword of God's judgment and provides access into God's rest. Our entrance into God's rest is contingent on us resting in Christ's finished work. He has passed by the sword for our judgment. He has been pierced for our transgressions. He is the one who circumcises our hearts. He is the one who leads us into God's rest. Now this brings us to truth number five. And that is to hold fast your confession to Jesus, our great high priest. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, as you look at Hebrews chapter 4, it's laid out with two powerful bookends in verse 1 and verse 16. The first verse states, let us fear. And the final verse states, let us with confidence draw near. The word of God strips us of pride and causes us to fear. Yet the word of God doesn't leave us hopeless and afraid. It points us to our only hope, Christ It is the same word of God that condemns and judges unbelievers as it is that cuts believers' hearts, sending them running to Christ who waits for us with open arms. The author is pressing his readers to hold fast to their confession to Christ and to not walk away. The author wants his readers to draw near to the great high priest with confidence This high priest can sympathize with our weaknesses. He's been tempted as we have, yet he is without sin, and he has trailblazed the path to bring us into God's rest. Now I'm going to offer three application points from this text by way of a theological framework to understand rest. So many of you have sat under Kyle's teaching for any period of time, know that he likes to bring gifts in the form of sanctified charts to help melt our brains. Well, today I come bringing gifts. 
not in the form of a chart, but rather a Venn diagram to detail what rest looks like from a theological viewpoint. Now, although the focus of God's rest primarily anticipates a future rest, I would be negligent if I skipped over the present reality of rest in the life of believers today. We have a term in theology to describe this as already, not yet. So when believers come to Christ in faith, they have already entered that rest, yet it is not complete. We are experiencing that rest in part, yet there is a future rest to come. So this Venn diagram provides a little bit of a picture of what it looks like for believers' experience. You've got your positional rest, which is peace with God. You can think of that as justification. You have a present rest or an internal rest or a peace that informs your Christian worldview and the way that you make sense of the world around you. And then you have a perfected rest, which is when you will be glorified and in the presence of God. So, application number one is to fear, lest any of us have missed the positional rest in Christ. There are some today who are just like the ones that the author of Hebrews was writing to, who are straddling the fence. They like to hear the things of God. They like to associate with the people of God. They like to follow God up to a point. They appear to be among the people of God, but their hearts are set on Egypt. They are at the edge of the promised land, and they can see it, yet they are gazing intently over their shoulders, very much in love with this current world. The author of Hebrews says to fear in the event that you have missed this rest. He wants them to understand that God is not one to be trifled with. God is not one to be mocked. God is not one to be ignored. You are going to have to face a sword one way or another. Allow the word of God to cut you today and send you into Christ. The promise of rest remains today. Now, we do not know how long today will last because tomorrow may not be today. Our biggest need in life is peace with God. Trust in the promises of God fulfilled in Christ and you will enter into his rest. Application number two is to allow the present rest of Christ to inform your worldview. So there are a lot of similarities between the Christian life and the wilderness generation that I do not want to overlook. The rest that Christ has accomplished for us is complete, yet we still live in a fallen world. We struggle daily to keep our eyes focused on the promised land. Yet the more that we are consumed with the presence of God, the more that our knowledge of Him increases, the more that our love grows for Him, the more that we realize that we cannot return to Egypt. We just do not belong in Egypt anymore. However, for the remainder of our lives, we will be in the wilderness. Yet, we are not alone. God's presence is with us. He has indwelled us. He is informing us. He has given us a church to come alongside us. He has given us the gift of prayer. He has given us his written word so that we can know his will. Friends, I know that it seems like the world is going insane. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. But we have a future rest. Friends, 
I know that there is suffering. We all suffer in one way, shape, or form. But we have a future promise where there will be no pain. Friends, I know that everything here stopped. But we are to a place where there is no corruption. Dear friends, hold fast to Christ. Rest in Christ. He is coming for us. He will make all things right. Remember that at the present time, there will be toil and there will be struggles, yet we have a promise of entering into God's rest. And allow this reality to give you a present rest, even though it seems like the world is falling apart around us. Everybody who has Christ has laid hold of the promises of God, and we know what our future holds, regardless of the mess that's going on around us in the world. Application number three is to remain focused on the promise of perfected rest. So the perfected rest is when God will make everything right once again. Everything that was tipped upside down at the fall will be set right for eternity. Satan will be cast in the lake of fire. The unbelievers will be judged for their wickedness and rebellion. And the saints will be glorified. And all of the pain that we experience in life will be gone forever. Death, sin, pain, disease, and labors will all be replaced with perfect union with our blessed Savior, the one who has taken the sword that we deserved and gives us an eternal rest that we do not deserve. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.